0: Well, today, we want to talk about peace. And we think about the world that we live in, China, Afghanistan, Iran, the Taliban, ISIS, North Korea, Nigeria, Sudan, violence, murders, suicides, shootings, police killings, police killed, weed, meth, alcohol, opiates, fentanyl, overdosing, death, Social injustice, racism, white supremacy, intersectionality, socialism, capitalism, Democrat, Republican, libertarian, financial inequality, urban poverty, equity, 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 climate change, Arctic melt off, hurricanes, tornadoes, typhoons, domestic violence, spousal abuse, child abuse, elder abuse, HIV, corona, COVID. COVID 19, SARS 2, Omicron, vaccines, masks, lockdowns, quarantine centers. Should we go on? (laughs) Where's the peace? Everywhere that we look, we see chaos, confusion, pain, dislocation, and disintegration. The world around us is in a state of lawlessness and corruption. Politically, socially, emotionally, spiritually, and individually. The news is fake on both sides, if you haven't noticed. And the only consistent thing about it is that it's bad. But it wasn't always like this. It wasn't. There was a time when everything worked out, a time when everything was in place, a time when all things were not fractured or dislocated, and that was before sin entered the world. The world was a paradise, and in that paradise was shalom, peace. The Old Testament used Shalom, to describe the now elusive and just out-of-reach sense of well-being, every heart longs for. Ecclesiastes tells us he has set eternity in their hearts. So we long for something just beyond our reach, but somehow we know it's there, like that sweet scent of a flower as we walk down a path, it's there but then it's gone. And we go back to try to catch the scent again, and we can't because it's past. Elusive. Peace is elusive in this world. Shalom in the Old Testament is a state that is stress-free. It's ordered. It's beautiful, tranquil. Wonderfully restful and filled with joy. And whether talking of the absence of war or the well-being of a family, prosperity and commerce, or an existence without fear, shalom is a God-described ideal state of existence. Let's pray. Father, as we enter into the truth of your word regarding shalom or peace, we pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding We pray that we would quiet our hearts from thinking about the things outside of this environment right here now, that we would each individually yield our hearts to you, the Spirit of God, to do what you will with us today through your word, whatever that may be, and we thank you in advance in Jesus' name. So I want to talk a little bit today about peace And we'll start with a short history of peace in the Bible. If we take a look at the word itself and how it's used in the Bible, it's all too common to equate the Hebrew word shalom with our English word peace or the Greek word irene. And while shalom does contain elements of peace or irene, in its meaning it's way, way much more. Facets of shalom, the Hebrew word shalom comes from the root word Salem, Salem. And that's where we get shalom from. When we say that there's a city in the Middle East called Jerusalem, that is talking about Yeru, Yeru is a foundation, and Salem, Salem is peace, so that Jerusalem could be identified as the foundation of peace, or the city of peace. Now consider this city, Jerusalem. The Old Testament reveals that Jerusalem was also called the city of David, and once David assured that the temple would be uh, erected there, Jerusalem became the religious center of the kingdom. The kingdom. And the temple housing the ark then became known as a holy city because of the presence of Yahweh in the city, in the temple. In 2 Samuel 5, 7, we read, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And so Jerusalem is the city of David. Zion is always spoken of with awe, always spoken of with awe. In Psalm 2, where God says of this city, the foundation of peace Quote, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Shalom means much more than our English word peace, or even the Greek word, irene. Its significance is not limited to the political domain, to the absence of war and enmity, or just to the social realm, or to the absence of of quarrel and strife. Its range commingles several spheres and and can come in different contexts to a a plentiful physical condition or a, a moral value and ultimately to a cosmic principle and a divine attribute, shalom. In the Bible, the word shalom is most commonly used to refer to a state of affairs Uh, well-being, tranquility, prosperity, and security, circumstances unblemished by any sort of defect. Just imagine that. Unblemished by any sort of defect. Shalom is a blessing. It is a manifestation of divine grace. There are various shades of meaning given to the term shalom in the Old Testament. Let me just mention three of them. It can mean health or soundness. In Genesis 29.6, Jacob asks after the health of Laban, and he says, is he in shalom? Is he in peace? And Psalm 38.3 tells us, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no peace in my bones because of my sin. There is no shalom in my bones, no wholeness. Or again, the Moses, uh, Moses, when he commanded the people to build the altar of God, uh, that would be shalom. He says, I want this altar to be shalom, meaning every stone must be in its place. You find that in Deuteronomy 27.6. So healthy or sound. Secondly, shalom has a nuance of fullness or completeness. This multifaceted word is found in Job 5.24 where Job says that his tents or his uh, habitations will be in a state of shalom. They will be secure. Because when he examines his flock, he will discover that all are present and not one is missing. Therefore, shalom brings with it a sense of being complete where everyone is present and accounted for, and none are missing. It's a beautiful word. Thirdly, it pictures security and tranquility, and possibly it's closer in meaning here to peace. In Job 21.9, in his agony, he questions how the homes of the wicked can be shalom. How can they be safe from fear? And in the very familiar text of Isaiah 53, which we're all aware of if we've read the Bible much, the chastening for our shalom, for our peace, our well-being fell upon him, upon Christ. Therefore, when we consider the idea of peace or shalom, and all the intricate and nuanced understanding of the term shalom, We discover that the Bible's meaning of this term is richer and deeper than we might have imagined when we just think of peace. Shalom covers all aspects of well-being, whether within the sphere of countries and war, social structures, cultural attitudes, or the emotional, physical, and spiritual state of well-being enjoyed by an individual. Shalom is what is longed for and sought after throughout the Old Testament. I'm familiar with the Old Testament and the storyline of the Old Testament leading up to the birth of Messiah. And it's amazing the search for peace that the Old Testament saints sought for Messiah to be born. You see... In Isaiah 26, 3 through 4, it says, You will keep him in perfect peace, Shalom, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Old Testament prophecies about Shalom. It's within the long memory of the people of Israel and the holy oracles, the word of God that recorded the idyllic setting in the garden before sin. we would not know of what Eden was like if it was not divinely revealed. And it reveals the ever-present hunger for shalom that God in his manifest love and mercy promised to his people. The very first promise of shalom came after Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3.15. Right in the midst of God's pronouncements of Adam and Eve for bringing sin into the world, he promised a deliverer. The deliverer would be the one who would come and completely resolve the problem of sin and thereby restore true shalom, which was destroyed by sin. Genesis 3.15 is referred to by theologians as the first blush of the gospel. It's called the Proto-Evangelium, the first blush of the gospel. Then we see the promise of this deliverer reiterated as God addressed Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, where he made his unconditional covenant with Abraham that included the restoration of Shalom. He says, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That blessedness is shalom. And note that it's not just Israel he was talking to. All the families of the earth. By far the most uh, extensive promise of God for peace came through the prophet Isaiah, who spoke to a future day to his Old Testament audience, right? Turn with me, if you would, real quickly to Isaiah chapter 9. Beginning in verse 1, I'll read through verse 7. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You will multiply the nation, and you will increase their strength and their gladness. And they will be glad in your presence and with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you will break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. That's referring to the Babylonian captivity. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. That's talking about the second coming the millennial kingdom. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, Prince of Shalom. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or peace. Peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will be accomplished. It's amazing prophecy there. The first and second advents of Jesus are commingled together in that text of Scripture. And it shows that the fulfillment of the glory will be shown on Galilee during the first Advent, Messiah's advent, when Jesus Christ was born. You can find that in Matthew 4, 14 through 16. But there's also elements of the prophecy whose fullness will not be realized until Christ's second coming when he brings everlasting shalom, everlasting peace, as he sits on the throne of David in Jerusalem, reigning over the millennial kingdom. That is not some spiritualization. That is a fact that will take place, beloved. There will be a thousand-year reign when Christ sits on the throne in his glorified body in Jerusalem. And he will reign for 1,000 years with a rod of iron. And justice will reign. I can't wait. I can't wait for that day. And finally in Ezekiel 34:25 we read of God's covenant of peace, his covenant of shalom. He'll make it with his people. It's a direct reference to the new covenant found in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 37. That new covenant that Jesus talked about when he shared the last supper. This blood is the blood of the new covenant and which we celebrate each month when we take communion. New Testament believers enter into elements of this new covenant and its initial blessings, but the full blessing will be enjoyed during the millennial kingdom. So that's just a short history of this this word shalom. I I would love to just start at the very beginning in Genesis and just walk through each place where it's used and show you how important it was to Israel as they reached out for Messiah. Messiah. What's the answer for world peace? Well, the promise of peace from the Old Testament. All of the peace promised in the Old Testament was intimately wrapped up in the promise of Messiah. When Messiah comes, the prophecy said, he will bring peace with him. Many of the Old Testament uh, prophecies contained elements of both the first and second advent, as I showed you in Isaiah. But the fact remained that Messiah was at the center of them, whether the first advent or the second advent. It's all about Jesus. Always has been about Jesus. That's why the Sunday school kid just answers Jesus. He nailed it. That's the answer, kids. Remember that. When you're asked a question in Sunday school you don't know the answer to, just say Jesus, and it's all good. And if it isn't, come tell pastor. The fulfillment of peace is found in Jesus Christ. Messiah is at the center of peace, and it would be his greatest gift to us as individuals and to the world. Now, what does all of this have to do with Advent? Well, it's got a lot to do with Advent. The fulfillment of peace is first discovered in the birth of Jesus Christ. And as we look at the account of Jesus' birth, it becomes very clear that this was indeed the one Isaiah had spoken about when he prophesied the birth of the Prince of Peace, Prince of Shalom, who would usher in the initial blessings of the new covenant of peace. So let's just consider that just a little bit. There's much about peace around the birth of Jesus Christ, even Zechariah. The father of John, the Baptist, prophesied of Jesus after quoting Isaiah 9 that he will guide our feet into the way of shalom, into the way of irene, irene, peace, Luke one seventy nine. The angels sang out in heavenly chorus. The shepherds, as they were listening, after announcing on that very day in the city of David, There had been born for them a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And the heavenly host sang out, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth shalom among men with whom he is well pleased. The message of the kingdom was preached, and it was a message of peace. I don't think there's anyone who is familiar with the Bible that would deny that John the Baptist was the one who let everyone know that the kingdom of God was near. Prepare ye the way. In Matthew three two, John preaches, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near." And in Mark one fifteen, Jesus preaches, "Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand." And what is the kingdom of God? Well, Romans fourteen seventeen tells us very clearly. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace. The kingdom of God is peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's a restoration to something that was lost through sin. All the way from Garden of Eden, that paradise of shalom, and the shattering consequences of sin, with God's promise of a Redeemer who would restore shalom, Through the times of the kings and the prophets, there was a longing for shalom of God echoed in the hearts of men. And God promised that He would send a deliverer, and the prophets identified Him as the Prince of Peace. And the Gospels show us in the birth of Jesus Christ that it is He who is God incarnate. We just sang about it Emmanuel, God is with us. He came. So that there might be peace on earth and among men with whom he is pleased. The good news of Christmas is that peace has come. Peace has come. It's not just some worn-out phrase that preachers talk about every Christmas. It's not some pleasant platitude pulled out of a box during the season and put back into the box before New Year's Eve. That's the first thing that I noticed about my conversion. When I confessed Christ and told him I wanted to be one of his, I immediately experienced peace that just overwhelmed me. And I just smiled. I remember distinctly, hands on my chest like this, sleeping, laying on a couch. And I prayed that prayer, and the peace just, just enveloped me, and I went to sleep with a smile. so much more than just a word the shalom of God has come to this broken planet filled with discord and pain the shalom that brings all the pieces together again the shalom of God it makes whole again those who have been shattered by you fill the blank why do people drink why do people carouse why do people do drugs why do people get angry it's because they lack peace The shalom of God, it fills up the gaps left by fractured relationships. It brings the desperately needy security, security that the heart longs for. It brings and assures the soul of its yearning for tranquility. For that's the meaning of shalom, and that's the meaning of irene. It's a meaning of peace. This day in the city of David there has been born for them a Savior who is Christ the Lord, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, shalom, among men with whom he is well pleased. Now, you might think that that is a call for good works because only those who are pleasing to God bring good works and and, and they get the peace. Hogwash. That's a lie of the devil. That is not true. Look at what the verse says. And on earth, peace among men with whom he is well pleased. Let me break that down for you. Shalom, the shalom of God, is accessible to everyone, it's available to all. But it's experienced only by those with whom he is well pleased. Upon whom God's favor rests is the literal interpretation of that verse. You find that in Luke 2.14. According to the original language, it should be read, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. How does he favor us? By saving us. That's the favor of God. And it's not gained by good works. It's gained by grace, a free gift of God. In Jesus' parting words to his disciples, he said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I don't give it to you as the world gives, and don't let your hearts be troubled, and don't be afraid. I read it this morning. The shalom of God is available to those who turn from their sin and trust in the presence and the Prince of Peace. He's the promised deliverer from Genesis 3.15, the one through whom all the families on the earth would be blessed and spoken of in the Abrahamic covenant. He's the one when I was teaching the Taliabo people. I mentioned this Friday night at our little get-together for joint heirs, As we were walking through the Old Testament leading up to the New Testament and in the birth of Christ, and then he was going to be baptized, and John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This old shaman sat in front all the time, and he was hated by all the other tribal people because he had poisoned probably half the tribe. (laughs) Um, He wasn't a nice man pre-salvation, but he was really intent on this story. And when I said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, this guy goes, just sitting there right in front of me, goes, what do you know? God became a man. Now, who told him that? We surely didn't talk about that, but he identified that. So let me give you a few thoughts on the peace with God and the peace of God, because there's a difference, and it's a beautiful difference. There are two distinctions when it comes to peace. In the New Testament, there is peace with God, and there is the peace of God. You see, the absence of peace is everywhere, as I mentioned at the front of the sermon It's no shock to anyone that our world is filled with disharmony and fractured relationships and nations fighting nations and every day and everywhere violence is used against individuals. There's injustice and inequality within our society, our systems, racism, favoritism, corruption. Never seen so much corruption. Never seen so much fear. And all of it can be summed up in one word. Three letters. What is it? Sin. Sin. Very simple. Adam and Eve could have no, had no idea the horrible consequences that their disobedience brought upon the earth. They could not know that. Every horrific thing and every tiny hurt is all traceable back to sin. And so this earth, in all its disarray and trouble, longs for peace. We long for peace. Peace. And the peace will only come as individuals find peace with God. Now, this is the good news, right? Peace with God comes through Jesus Christ. This was a great question burning in the heart of Luther. How could he find peace with God? He was tormented by his sin. He confessed it hours Every day, he just would confess all of his sins. And he did penance for it. And he found himself sinning more. And he was so frustrated and so honest with himself. Peace, peace. How can he find peace with God? Well, the Apostle Paul wrote the entire book of Romans in answer to that question. But one verse is hugely helpful, and it has... This to say, quote. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. There it is. We have peace with God, being justified by faith through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's Romans five one. Mark it in your mind. Mark it in your Bible. Circle it. And if you want to talk to your relatives and friends that don't have peace with God. Tell them this is how they can have peace with God. They need to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Savior, and they will have peace with God. Here's the elusive and desperately sought after shalom with God. Here's the Irani or Irene with God. And it's peace that includes every element contained within the concept of the Old Testament word shalom. Something everyone is able to grasp is the fact that all people everywhere are caught up in sin because of original sin. All are born with sin. And therefore, all peoples are in a state of enmity with God. Paul described that state in Romans 3.23 by saying all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. That's what death means. And in Romans 8, 7 through 8, he just fills it out a little bit more. He shows how sinners are actually... Enemies of God. He says the mind set on the flesh. That means people who do not yet have reconciliation with God. The, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. And get this. For it is not even able to do so. That's that dead in trespasses and sin stuff. It's incapable of submitting itself. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Just impossible. Now this doesn't sound much like Luke 2.14, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Where is the peace? The Roman verses do not describe the people with whom he is well pleased, or those whom he favors. It sounds like these people are the enemies of God, and that God is their enemy which would be 100% correct. But God, but God, he's able to restore shalom. He's able to bring irony to the fractured relationships between sinners and their creator. Now consider a thought as I read Ephesians 2. Think about that, that peace that is restored as I read from Ephesians chapter 2. Quote, for he himself... Jesus, speaking about Jesus, is our peace. (laughs) I'm so grateful. I am so grateful. He is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity. He destroyed the enmity between God and man and between man and man. Or consider Romans 5, 10, and 11. For while we were yet enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. We also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. What is reconciliation? It's two who are warring with each other, come together, and they're reconciled. What's another word for that? Peace. They have peace. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. There is therefore now no condemnation to you who are in Christ Jesus. Again, I am so grateful the war is over. Peace has been declared. It's been established between a sinner and his creator. Shalom with God is possible. But peace with God is only through Jesus Christ, his Son. He's the only name under heaven whereby men may be saved. Now, that's the peace with God. There's another nuance, and it's called the peace of God. And there's a difference. The peace with God that I just described is what theologians refer to as the doctrine of justification. It describes a legal transaction where God makes a judgment call. He declares an individual righteous. And so from that point forward, that person is right with God. He has peace with God because of what God declared him to be in Christ Jesus. No longer enemy of God. Now they have peace with God. Now this is in the realm of objective truth. It's outside of ourselves. It's a transaction that God performs upon us. We're passive in that. It's not due to any feelings that we might have or don't have. It's not about how you feel or about what we think might be. It's objective truth and it's when God declares something to be true about you. That's justification by faith. But there's a more subjective side to peace. And that's what I want to talk to you about right now. Just as the Old Testament shalom covered the idea of security and tranquility and overall sense of well being and safety, so the New Testament idea of irene is a blessed experience of believers. Those who have peace with God can experience the peace of God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, the peace of God. Philippians 4 7. This peace of God is ours in Christ Jesus. Another verse explains this Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. It's funny how a little preposition does something, huh? With, of. That means that the believer is to literally allow the peace of God to act as an umpire in their heart. Because. The Greek word used in this verse, rule, is taken from the Greek games where an athlete was checked by the umpire if he acted in a disqualifying way. And so in the same way, the peace of God rules in the hearts of believers and provides a calm, settled, tranquil, and complete sense of peace derived from your salvation and the knowledge that God is your Savior. It is a fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. Gentleness, goodness, kindness, peace. And the Spirit of God is checking the believer for behavior outside the rule of God's ways. What an incredible joy and assurance it is that the believer might immediately return to their sweet possession the very peace of God when they allow it to guard and rule in their hearts. But when you commit sin willfully, you know you've committed sin, then the Spirit's Ministry in your life moves from comfort to conviction. Same spirit, same heart, saved, but no longer comforted. There's agitation in life. There's, there's a lack of security. There's a lack of that sense of well-being and tranquility. And it's all geared to get us back in line with God's will so that we can experience the peace of God again. We need to allow the peace of God to guard our hearts. Maybe the best way to help you understand this beautiful truth is to listen to the voice of Spurgeon uh, describing his personal instance when the peace of God was not guarding and ruling in his own heart. Listen to this. This This is golden. He once said to his congregation, Quote, Fits of depression come over the most of us. Usually cheerful as we may be, We must, at intervals, be cast down. The strong are not always vigorous, and the wise not always ready. The brave not always courageous, and the joyous not always happy. So far, yes, I can agree with that. I find myself frequently depressed. Not me, Spurgeon. Okay, I just, that's not my downfall. I'm on the other side. I find myself often joyful. (laughs) And just not depressed. Perhaps more so than any other person, he says, I find myself frequently depressed. And I find no better cure for that depression than to trust in the Lord with all my heart and seek to realize afresh the power of the peace speaking blood of Jesus and his infinite love in dying upon the cross to put away all my transgressions. So, what does he do? He gets depressed. When he finally figures it out that he's depressed, he says, Oh, my soul, why are you cast down within me? And he goes to the gospel, and he says, The peace-speaking blood of Jesus Christ. And he claims it all over for himself. Brand new again, all over. He takes himself in hand. He does not indulge that sense of depression. That is allowing the peace of God to rule in your hearts. Spurgeon was intentional in allowing the peace of God to reign in his heart. So on this second day of Advent, and as we quiet our hearts looking forward to remembering the birth of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, may the peace of God guard your hearts. May you exalt in the knowledge of the forgiveness of your sins and be reconciled. You can truly enjoy the peace with God, won by the Savior, even as you enjoy the peace of God as you walk with him from day to day. There's no greater gift than that gift. Jesus Christ, our Prince of Peace, won it on our behalf. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we contemplate your wonderful word and these themes of hope and peace and love and joy, Lord, Let them sink down into our hearts and let them be as a salve. Father, these days are dark. There's a lot of turmoil, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of things that militate against peace. And yet we recognize that you've told us that the fruit of the Spirit, one of them is is peace. Another is joy. And so even in the midst of all the turmoil and craziness and chaos and disconnectedness and corruption, they're all real. It's all happening. But Father, we can allow your peace to reign in our hearts, to rule, to guide and direct our steps. Thank you that you are the Prince of Peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.